Well, today we're going to be talking about one of the biggest success stories in all of independent comics. They're the heroes in a half shell, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, this is a concept that sounds completely ridiculous on the face of it, but they became a real force not only in comics, but in TV, films, toys, and even video games. Um, if you were around in the 80s and 90s, uh, the TMNT were absolutely everywhere, but it's a beloved franchise even today, uh, wouldn't you say, Mike? Oh, it really is. I mean, there have been ongoing TMNT cartoon series clear up until 2020 with the rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And of course, multiple comic book series and movies as well, bringing the fandom to successive generations. I mean, I went TMNT crazy in 1987 between the Nintendo and arcade game and the toys. And even today, the magic is still alive in a whole new group of kids. And I think that's awesome when a fandom can really just span generations like that. Oh, I know, right? I mean, there was a time back in the day when Turtle Mania was in fever pitch, and you couldn't get away from them. I mean, and a lot of it's because they can work at any age, I mean, for any audience, and that's the strength of them. Um, now, like many people, I definitely had my own Turtles phase during my teen years, uh, like you did, and I watched the, con uh, the cartoon consistently, but I also read the original TMNT comics in uh, collected form, and I was able to appreciate how the characters evolved from their original form. Um, while I'm not as big a fan uh, as I was during their heyday, I mean, it's hard not to love those peaceful, loving kids. <laughs> I mean, they're just the right balance of fun adventure and serious family drama that makes them entertaining to watch. I think you nailed it there. The turtles have a perfect balance in them that, that gives it a little something extra for, for a larger audience. I, I know that I, I was a bit of an outcast as a child and beyond the ninja aspect, which I loved, of course, I, I really bonded with the fact that the turtles and Splinter were outcasts too, not accepted by society, but they made a family out of each other and made themselves more than what they were cast into. It's a lot of the same fantasy type elements that grabbed many other disenfranchised kids into loving the turtles. Plus, as you said, they're just fun to watch. Oh, that they are. Uh, outcast teen heroes have a very strong appeal. I mean, especially to kids uh, who really feel like outcasts themselves. And the Turtles had that in spades. Uh, and they're also a family, and anybody can relate to uh, family struggles like that. But let's talk about how such a strange idea came to be. <laughs> sure, Steve. How the Turtles came to be is actually a really interesting story. It, it was just a joke at first. On the road, once... Uh, Eastman and Laird joked about a giant turtle jumping out of the woods and kicking the side of their van, causing it to spin around and they were so that they were facing the other direction and they just kept on driving. <laughs> if you if you want my opinion, there was likely marijuana involved in that discussion. <laughs> but either way, yeah. But either way, Peter Laird believes that was the origin of the TMNT. 
so keep that in mind as I tell you this next story. One night in 1983, Peter was watching stupid TV shows, something he did a lot. And Kevin decided to bug him while he was doing that, which is something Kevin did a lot. Likely struck by the inspiration of that van-kicking turtle, Kevin Eastman drew a masked nunchaku-wielding ninja turtle and showed it to Peter Laird, and they both laughed about the sheer goofiness of it. But goofy or not, Peter had to one-up Kevin, so he drew a cooler one that was slightly different. Then, of course, Kevin had to top Peter's sketch, so he drew uh, one of four of them standing together in a dramatic pose, and all of them with different weapons. Uh, you know, uh, he... Eastman penciled it and Peter inked it and then uh, he even Peter even added the Teenage Mutant to Eastman's Ninja Turtles part. Uh, both of them were just pissing their pants that night saying this is the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> really? And that's how most people react to the concept at first when they first hear about it. I mean, I can remember hearing that name from the first time and finding it kind of silly, but then they just grow on you until you find them lovable and cool. Um, and But the impressive thing about the Turtles, at least to me, is how Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird were able to take this bizarre idea and turn it into a commercial juggernaut. I mean, when they started, they had very little money to their name. And in fact, uh, Kevin Eastman had to take a loan from his uncle just to get the Turtles comic out there. I mean, there was a print run of only like uh, 3,000 issues to start with. Um, and, you know, if you own one, congratulations, because you're the proud owner of a classic comic. <laughs> but those 3,000 issues, I mean, they found themselves in the right hands. I mean, not just in the indie comic scenes of the time, but, I mean, even as far as Hollywood. Even more impressively, though, neither Leesman nor Laird were connected with the big two. And Eastman came in as a completely fresh voice in comics. I mean, I honestly look at TMNT as the gold standard uh, that we in independent comics aspire to. I mean, the idea that if you have the right idea at the right time, you can make your dreams a reality. It's true. And, you know, there are other inspiring indie successes like Mike Mignola and Hellboy or Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead, but none that reached turtle mania levels and none so quickly. Although I think maybe The Walking Dead has probably come close, uh, especially over the years. But even The Walking Dead owes a debt to TMNT because TMNT essentially started the black and white craze that The Walking Dead jumped on. But I've also never heard of an indie comic before TMNT that was outselling in a, the Avengers in comic shops by issue three or four. Mm. Plus, within three years of making TMNT number one in 1984, they had an animated cartoon and a toy line. That is a meteoric rise if I've ever heard of one. And really, like Eastman said, there were so many happy accidents along the way that made it happen. If Eastman hadn't have found that copy of Laird's Scat comic on the bus, they would have never met. If those 3,000 copies they printed didn't happen to make it into just the right hands for others to take interest, it might have stayed just a popular indie comic. To be fair, some of that was some of that luck was actually preparation meeting opportunity. Uh, Eastman and Laird formed Mirage Studios the year before in 1983, named thus because there was no studio. It was just two guys in a basement, at least initially. Mirage Studios made a media kit for TMNT number one that included a press release in the Comics Journal number 89 and a full-page ad placed in Comics Buyer's Guide number 547 that helped pique the public interest a lot and very well could have been the initial spark that began the turtle phenomenon on the indie comic level. Plus, I find this interesting. The small print runs made those 3,000 comics and trade magazines instant collector items, and within months, they were trading it over 50 times their cover price. As an indie comics creator, I can only hope to come close to their success. Not that 
um, and comics are really all that kid friendly, but you know what I mean. Maybe with Blitz, though. <laughs> uh, we can only hope, but I mean, we have a long way to go before that. Um, as, as for the Turtles themselves, I mean, this really is a case where virtually every classic comic strip from the 80s was thrown into a blender and then became something that was truly original. Um, what was big at that time? Well, teen heroes like the Teen Titans and the New Mutants. Um, the X-Men and the idea of mutants were already hitting the zeitgeist thanks to Chris Claremont's work at Marvel. And ninjas were the latest hot thing as well due to the large part to Frank Miller and his defining run on Daredevil. I mean, the Foot Clan is a clear nod to the hand from Daredevil, and I can't help but think that Raphael's use of the Psy was borrowed from Elektra. Um, there are also very strong elements from Jack Kirby, which Laird openly admitted to, and it shows. Um, Crank, for instance, is a Kirby-style villain that's reminiscent of MODOK. And uh, Raphael's trench coat borrowed heavily from the one that Brent Ben Grimm wore in Fantastic Four. Uh, making them all turtles and then shoving all these ideas together transformed them into something more original and enduring. I think it goes to show that you can take various various ideas that you know of from others, elements here and there, and make something wholly new by putting your spin on it. And sometimes by adding an idea that's just so crazy and out there, it just works. <laughs> but as to the influences, those were definite, undeniable ones to their character. I would add Miller's Ronin series to that as well, but his Daredevil one, Daredevil for certain. Um, but while we're on the subject of Daredevil, if you look at the Turtles' origin in TMNT number one from 1984 and lay it side by side with Matt Murdock getting blinded by that radioactive isotope after pushing the old man out of the way of the truck, you see that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles' origin story clearly paid homage to the first issue of Daredevil from 1963 as well. I mentioned I was going to bring this up in the DD episode, and here it is. Eastman and Laird extrapolated the scene from the scene in Daredevil number one where Matt pushes the old man out of the way and then gets hit with the radioactive material so that after the canister containing that isotope struck Murdoch, it bounced off and collided with someone carrying a fishbowl containing his pets, four baby turtles. The fishbowl broke and it fell into the sewer below where they were discovered or where they discovered or were discovered by Splinter, who was also affected by the radioactive substance. There, there's inspired by, and then there's full on putting another character's origin as what triggered your character's origin. <laughs> Honestly, I think they only got away with it because TMNT was largely considered a loving parody. Oh, uh, I am. I have. I never thought about the turtles mutagen being based on the radioactive waste that hit young Mac Murdock. But now that you mention it, that sounds exactly right to me. Uh, that origin is the kind of convenient random accident that comes straight out of the Silver Age. And Lee and Kirby were huge influences on Eastman and Laird, as we've already talked about. So that makes total sense. Honestly, I thought they did it in a way that kind of filled out the story. I mean, well, I never thought about what happened to the canister. When they bring it up, it, it does, like, does sound like something that needs to be explained. I mean, the isotope amplified Murdoch's senses. What if someone else had gotten a hold of it? Well, now we know. It would have made Ninja Turtles and a talking rat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you don't touch the radioactive blowing ears. <laughs> so, so here I was thinking that we can go down and uh, talk about our impressions of each of the major characters. Um, the Turtles are actually a really well-designed group, and, and for the same reasons the Fantastic Four are. Uh, like the FF, they're a family who happen to be superheroes, but the real reason that the Turtles work is that the personalities of the four Turtles balance each other out so perfectly um, you have Leonardo, who's the Cyclops of the group, uh, serious-minded, disciplined, goal-oriented. 
Um, Michelangelo is the joker of the group, all about pizza and having fun. Um, Donatello is the intellectual who is uh, more interested in uh, building machines uh, than anything else. And Raphael is the tough guy who's driven by anger and aggression, but with a softer side underneath the hard shell. You know, Raph and Leo often argue with each other about who should be making the calls and what those calls should be. Leo is the kind of kid that, that sees the greatness of their father, in his case, Splinter, and knows what he has to live up to and takes that very seriously. While Leo is clearly the leader in the stead of Splinter, Raph just has to fight him on every inch like a rebelliously independent, well, teenager. Let's not forget mm -hmm. teenagers right in the title. Uh, but ultimately, Raph always takes off and realizes he's not quite as hot on his own as he thought he was. And Leo realizes that maybe he should listen a little bit more. And they bond over their brotherly love. Donnie and Mikey are definitely the more lighthearted of the four. And Mikey is another one that really embodies the teenage part of TMNT with his partying and general good time having nature. Donnie, however, I see as the typical nerd type that dove into the intellect and valued their education. However, he's also the only turtle I want to play D&D &D with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But seriously, I think the turtles are balanced in great part by Master Splinter and his teachings about teamwork and valuing each other's place on the team. And one of the strongest messages of the show is how a group of opposites can form a much stronger unit together than apart, and that unit is family. I think, I, in that respect, I think they are a lot like the FF. I also think that that mirrors Eastman and Laird's relationship as, as they loved a lot of the same stuff but came at it from different perspectives, kind of like you and me, Steve. Mm -hmm. However, they realized early on that their individual strengths complemented each other. Eastman brought out brought the dynamic layouts and Kirbyisms that paced the story, and he did the coloring, and Laird brought a lot of subtle, subtle nuances to the script, and his art was much more refined and detail than Kevin's grittier style but it got to where even though even though each of them were on every single page they couldn't necessarily tell where one of them ended and the other one started hmm. I think you hit on something when you talk about the dynamics of the turtles mirroring Eastman and Laird's relationship um, as I recall Laird was the basis for Donatello because he was the cooler and the more intellectual of the two um, I want to say that Eastman was more like Michelangelo or Raph or maybe a bit of both um, and, I, and, and Eastman was always better at being the front man, uh, much like Stan Lee was, while Laird was more knowledgeable about comics and made the, the more cool-headed decisions. Um, I'm pretty sure that they admitted to putting bits in themselves and the turtles in various ways, too. And I definitely agree that their teamwork was a complementary relationship with a common goal that bonded them, even if they disagreed on certain things. Yeah, you know, their growing apart is definitely the sad part of the TMNT story. They just, they just went in different directions, especially with Eastman purchasing Heavy Metal Magazine in January of 1992, and then that, that awesome Heavy Metal 2000 animated film that came out in July of 2000 based off the, the graphic novel The Melting Pot written by Kevin Eastman, Simon Beisley, and Eric Talbot. It's no coincidence that Eastman sold off his share of the Turtles franchise to Laird in 2000 with Heavy Metal Magazine taken off. But I was glad to hear that they're friends once again, and, and they even did a signing together yeah that is a shame much uh the same way as it sucks to see the beatles go their separate ways but i mean in the end they were very different people and they had very different muses that were calling them i mean it happens regrettable as it is so um on a more positive note mike i have to ask you this 
most people have a favorite Ninja Turtle, so it seems worth asking if there's one that you prefer. Which is the one you like the most and why? Hmm, I like that question. Um, I have to say, when I was young, I was somewhere between Mikey and Raph, if you can picture that. Like being part Bender and part Johnson from the Breakfast Club. <laughs> but that yeah. said, <laughs> but that said, uh, I was my I was a Mikey fan when I was a boy. I just like to have fun and I like to wisecrack. However, as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate Leonardo, especially after watching him dodge a bullet in an IDW comic. I guess I appreciate his position as a leader and his ability to carry that burden well. You know, he makes mistakes, sure, who doesn't? But he owns those mistakes, and he does his best to grow all of the time as a person, a leader, and a martial artist. I guess I respect him as a leader in the same way I respect Cap. But but how about you, Steve? Who, who's your favorite? Who was your favorite as a kid, and who is still? And is is he still your favorite now? Oh, that's interesting. Um, and it doesn't really surprise me. I, I had a feeling you were probably a bit of a rap type, and I can see the <laughs> Mikey influence, uh, especially with the name. Um, this pro now, this probably won't surprise you, but I always lean to Leonardo and Donatello since way back when. Um, I do tend to like the leader characters quite a bit. I mean, especially characters like Cap or Cyclops. And Leo is definitely a character in that mold. I mean, he's the big brother of the group. Um, now, Donatello is a cooler head and the nerdy kid, and it was pretty easy to relate to that. That having been said, though, I think Raphael has grown on me a bit over the years, mainly because I can understand the struggles he faces as the younger brother of the group. Um, he's someone who wants the respect of Splinter and Leo, but he acts out because he's always frustrated and he has trouble expressing himself in any other way but violence. Um, at the same time, Raph really does love his family, even if they set him off a lot of the time, and he'll always come through for his brothers and his master. I can definitely see the Donnie in there, cool-headed, nerdy type, and and I think there was a fair, fair bit of self-education on your part as well. So I think I think you actually have that in common too. Plus, I do know how you like a great leader, so Leonardo totally makes sense. Um, as far as Raph goes, you are totally right on all of those points. I think anyone who's been the younger brother can relate. I think Raph's real flaw is that he knows the path he needs to take to get the respect that he wants, but he thinks it should just be given to him. It's like he's only willing to put in the work with the martial arts and not with the personal or spiritual growth. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a form of impatience, which is something that Splinter always tried to help Raph overcome. Um, but speaking of Splinter, um, I was honestly a little surprised when I heard that Master Splinter was based on a stick from Daredevil, even though I knew about the Daredevil influence. Um, I think part of that is that their personalities are so different, even though they're both top martial artists. I mean, Stick can honestly be a huge jerk to his students, and he doesn't care about much uh, beyond succeeding in his holy mission. Uh, Splinter, on the other hand, uh, cares very much about his children, and he's very much a father to the Turtles. So much so, in fact, that it's usually portrayed as a traumatizing loss to the boys every single time that something happens to Splinter. Totally. Um, even Raphael, who puts on an aggressive and tough front all the time, will usually be more himself um, around Splinter, and he will always respect what his master has to say. Uh, the fact that the Turtles will always agree about how much Splinter means to them, despite their differences, shows what kind of a father Splinter truly was. I mean, it's a really wholesome relationship between a father and his adopted sons. You were right about martial arts mastery and the name being the only similarities between Stick and Splinter. They are not even close to the same character, and from what I can tell, Splinter's only higher goal is his family. 
Speaking of which, you got me in the feels, actually, talking about Splinter and the Turtles relationship. That is a beautiful relationship for, for me. I mean, part master, part student, part father, part son. I have to say, I really love that father-master combo in a character. And Splinter is my prime example on how to do that. I, I like even when he just disciplines the boys. It's, it's in ways that involves training somehow. So there are two lessons being taught. One for the mind about what to do or not to, and one for the body. It's all about their growth rather than punishment, even though there are clear consequences. Oh, for sure. Now, uh, would you say Pai Long uh, from uh, Albino Warrior and Dragon Girl has a bit of splinter in him, or is that reading too much into it? Because it seems like the father-child and master-student combination runs through a lot of your books. Uh, there's definitely some splinter in Pai Long. Uh, Pai aspires to be the great father master that his master Shifu was to him. And Shifu is very much Mr. Miyagi and Splinter in my mind, but with some Buddhist, Buddhist principles mixed in. Awesome. Uh, that sounds about right to me. Um, uh, now, a question for you, Mike. Um, in some versions of the Turtles' origin, uh, Splinter was a, originally uh, Hamato Yoshi, the ninja master who trained and was betrayed by Shredder. Uh, Yoshi became Splitter after became, uh, being exposed to the mutagenic ooze that mutated the turtles. But then you have other versions, including the original film, where Splitter was pro, uh, Yoshi's pet rat, who learned ninjutsu by uh, watching his owner's movements. Uh, the rat then evolved in the same way that the turtles did. Is there a version of Splinter's origin that you prefer, and if so, why? <laughs> well... I'll answer that by telling you a story of a faux pas I made once while interviewing Kevin Eastman himself. You see, the first version you described there is from the IDW TMNT comics, and there's a bit more to it. Even the turtles are Hamato Yoshi's reincarnated children, and part of their ability to master ninjutsu so well and so quickly came from knowledge passed down from their previous lives. Not like a book, mind you, but they took to things as if their bodies and minds had already done them before. I absolutely love that version. I thought it was way better than Splinter as a rat in a cage learning martial arts by watching his master. There was no basis for why a rat would do that or even could. Anyway, seeing Eastman's name next to Tom Waltz, I assumed they came up with the reincarnation origin together. And I told Kevin what I just told you about my thoughts on the new origin. And there was a solid five seconds of just crickets. I mean, creak, creak. Then Kevin, ever so polite, ever the polite gentleman said, yeah, um, Tom Waltz actually came up with that. And it was again crickets as I picked my job off the floor in embarrassment. I mean, I had been a TMNT fan my whole life. And there I was talking to one of the men that created them. And I totally blew it. I mean, one of my all time epic fails. Uh, maybe, but I think it's awesome that you actually got to meet those guys. I mean, we should all aspire to epic fails like that. <laughs> but that having been said, I was always bothered by the idea of a rat learning martial arts by mimicry. I mean, for the reasons that you gave. And to be honest, there are just things that martial arts that you cannot learn easily or at all without hands-on instruction from an experienced master. Um, I tried learning kendo once that way, and it's just not the same. I mean, it's easy to learn and repeat bad habits without expert guidance from someone who's there with you. So I think it makes more sense if Splinter was Hamato Yoshi and the mutagen turned him into a rat. 
Oh, you're you're right about that, one hundred percent. And I'll add, um, I didn't like in the the latest movies how uh, Splinter learned ninjutsu from a book uh, he taught himself and then taught the turtles. I, I thought that was pretty off. Um, but you know, and it's for the reasons you're talking about. There there are some things you just can't learn properly on your own, especially something as precise as martial arts, where technique is so important. Just watching someone do the moves from a cage doesn't extrapolate a lesson well with martial arts. So despite my epic fail, I, I have to stand by what I said. And you're right. Having Kevin Eastman call my house and talk to me for like 45 minutes is one of the highlights of my life, even if it's coupled with such an embarrassing moment. I mean, totally understandable. But um, while we're on the subject of Eastman, I thought I'd run this past you. Uh, an interesting thing that struck me about April O'Neil is that she was based on an ex-girlfriend on Kevin Eastman. Um, I honestly would not have guessed that, but it makes sense in hindsight. I mean, she always seemed to be based on the intrepid reporter side character that you always see in comics, especially somebody like Lois Lane. But at the same time, um, underneath that, April always seemed to be more of a fun character than those previous reporter heroines, while also sometimes being a more serious contrast to the craziness of the Turtles. Um, she's basically the normal viewpoint character that we see the world of the Turtles through, and her being a reporter gives her a reason to interact with them the way that she does. Um, I will say, though, that the yellow jumpsuit gives her a different look than your typical reporter heroine, and I think it works for April. I don't know why. I think her believability as a viewpoint character probably comes from April being based on an actual person. Um, there's a sincerity about April that shines through in those stories. I did not know she was based on an actual person either, actually. Uh, but that does, as you say, give her a bit more realism than her otherwise trope character would have, uh, which is something I think they missed in the cartoon uh, in, from, from 87. Uh, but now I actually have a question for you. <laughs> I never okay. got much out of uh, her character myself until the original film. I feel like they made her a real person in that, and, and she was a good compliment to the Turtles. I, I also loved her with Casey, a character you're going to talk about in a minute. But when it comes to April O'Neil, do you have a favorite version between the 1987 cartoon version, the 1990 movie, or the 2014 movie? Hmm, good question there. Um, I probably lean to the 87 cartoon version of the three of them. Uh, that version feels the closest to what Eastman probably intended with her, from what I can tell. Um, I did like Judith Hogan the film, but she seemed a bit more mature than I'm used to. Um, Megan Fox in the reboot films was okay, I guess, but not really a huge favorite. But, I mean, I don't just like any of them, really. I mean, how about you? Well... Talking to Kevin, I know that of all the variations of the Turtles there had been up to the time of that interview, which was in 2017, I think. Uh, Kevin said that the 1990 TMNT movie is the best and closest to the characters. And I have to say that influences my opinion a lot. So I have to go with Judith Hogue in there. Uh, but that said, the April in the 87 cartoon was the standard I measured by for a while. Uh, Megan Fox's April was obnoxious and full of herself, and I just couldn't get into her character, even if I got the struggling reporter thing. Huh, that's interesting. Um, I honestly didn't know that Eastman preferred the movie version, um, so I'll refer to defer to his judgment on that one. Um, anyway, since you mentioned him earlier, let's get into Casey Jones. Um, he is an interesting side character, and you'll see him occasionally in the shows and the films. Um, Eastman and Laird uh, envisioned Casey as just the regular guy without 
any particular trauma, who goes out and fights crime because he's doing what he thinks is a civic duty. I do think there was probably was a bit of a joke intended with the sports theme weapons. Like he's Batman who uses an actual baseball bat to beat up criminals. <laughs> but, but there's one thing about Casey I think that you'd probably appreciate, Mike. Um, I'm pretty sure that Jason Voorhees was likely an inspiration behind Casey's hockey mask. I mean, Eastman and Laird soaked in pop culture influences constantly, and Jason would already have been a huge character by the time Casey was introduced. Uh, what's your take on Casey and his cool mask? Oh, I really like Casey Jones. In fact, he was the inspiration for the first character I created when I was 12, The Warrior. And he had similar penchant for sports-based weaponry. Um, I felt like the Turtles are not your typical vigilante superheroes, and I really loved his character introduction. I felt like we had a true blue vigilante with Casey, and I liked it. I, I really liked that his original inspiration to become a vigilante came from watching too much bad TV, something Laird used to do a lot. I especially loved Casey and Jones, uh, Casey Jones and Raph's first meeting in the park in the 1990 movie. That was awesome and hilarious. Plus, <laughs> when they were at the farm uh, after Splinter was taken and Donnie and Casey were fixing the truck and they played that game. Uh, my family actually played the, that that game for years after watching it. Uh, the, the, the game uh, coming up with uh, 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 an insulting word to call each other for each letter of the alphabet. Now, now it's just called the al alphabet insult game. Well, I didn't know there was a name for it until then. But <laughs> so so Casey is on Z and he calls Donnie Zipneck. And so Donnie is back on A and he calls AC Atomic Mount. I think my favorite was Elf Lips. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, those insults are horrible. And we came up with better ones when my family did it. <laughs> but it was a fun game. As far as Casey's mask, you know, I love that feel to the mask, especially as a boy. I was a big Friday the 13th fan as a kid. Jason was the man when I was younger, like Michael Myers is for me now. So I loved that addition, and and that gave that gave a, a level of badassness to Casey that that really just. It, he really could have come across more cheesy without it, I thought. Uh, but I picked up a totally different influence on Casey's mask as a boy, and that was Punisher's unique skull design and shape. Uh, in fact, when I drew my character, the warrior's mask, I leaned heavier into that uh, than the hockey, hockey mask. Uh, he's he's He is my favorite character and the side character in the TMNT universe. And I think Elias Codius uh, from the original TMNT movie played him best. But I did like Stephen Amell's version from the 2016 movie, too. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree on Elias Codias. I mean, he seemed like a guy off the street who's trying to be this cool vigilante. He just had this rough-around-the-edges feel of a guy from the mean streets. He did come off that way, and it's something that was missing from missing from the cartoons and Stephen Amell's version. Uh, they didn't wear the street like it was part of who they were. Uh, yeah, very true, and I think that's sometimes true of the Turtles as well. I mean, the Turtles were not always the family-friendly and cuddly Turtles that we remember from the 1990s, car 90s cartoon. In fact, the original Turtle stories could get pretty dark, and the first uh, film takes some cues from that version, in fact. Um, originally, TMNT took its cues from the darker and noirish influences of uh, Frank Miller. And in some ways, I think Eastman and Laird were trying to parody his style somewhat, while also trying to tell uh, some more serious stories in that style as well. But if you look at these original comics, there was a rougher edge to the Turtles in those days uh, than you'd see later. Uh, the evolution away from that started when the Turtles started being licensed for other media, uh, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So that raises a question. How do you generally like to see your Turtles, Mike? Darker and edgier or more of the fun cowabunga stuff? 
you know, the fun cowabunga stuff will always hold a place of nostalgia for me, but I prefer the more serious turtles. Uh, granted, haven't I haven't read the original stuff, but the IDW stuff I have read is much more serious take on them, and I definitely prefer it. I think I got enough of the fun cowabunga stuff, uh, which was taken from Snoopy, by the way, um, mm -hmm. when I was younger. And as an adult, I need uh, I, I need meatier content, and, and IDW provides that. I, I have heard that they actually lean really hard into the Linda ninja portion of their name, and like we're actually assassins in the original I mean, since you've read those, could, could you elaborate on that a little? I mean, how, how dark did they go? Now, um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they were full-on assassins, but they definitely were more ninja-like. In fact, they actually kill Shredder at the end of the first issue. Um, but while it's been some time, um, I remember a lot of gritty, gritty urban warfare between the Turtles and the Foot Clan. Um, the first movie took some cues from those early stories, like when the Foot uh, trashed the Turtles' lair and kidnapped Splinter. Um, in fact, I think that the film is the closest to the flavor of the original books of the adaptations that I've seen. Um, but to answer my own question, I think I kind of prefer um, a version that's between the two extremes. Um, I think that the turtles themselves should generally be fun characters most of the time, but you can have stories where they're forced to deal with darker situations. Um, they might try to be heroes and fail sometimes. Um, Raph is definitely going to deal with things in a darker way, and he should struggle against his own anger and his own violent urges. Um, their crime fighting should lead to consequences too, like when Splinter was kidnapped. And sometimes they need to deal with that seriously, but in the middle of that, pizza and jokes have their place in a turtle story. Definitely. I mean, that stuff is just as vital to the team in tea concoction as the martial arts and family elements. <clears throat> oh, for sure. Um, one other point about the original Turtles comics is something that uh, would be addressed later, and it was a real concern. Um, the problem is that the original Turtles ha all had the same ninja bandanas, and they were all red. This meant that it was impossible to tell the Turtles apart unless you kept track of their iconic weapons. You know, Leo's sword, uh, Raph's eye, Donnie's staff, or Mikey's nunchaku. Um, this was something that I'm glad was changed, as it made the reading the original comics much more difficult. Um, especially since the original comics were largely uncolored and they were black and white. Um, I think giving each turtle their own individual colors uh, set them apart more, and those colors suited their personalities too. Um, Leo and Donatello are much more cool-headed, so blue and purple really suit them. And Mikey's orange is warm without being angry, and I think that suits him really well. Um, they were right to let Raph keep the red, as I think his anger makes him ideally suited for that color. Um, totally. This is really a case where a simple color change made a huge difference with those characters and how they come across visually. I have to say that I agree with you and, and that actually so did Playmates Toys for that matter. Having a team of people with almost no distinction between them makes it hard to get to, into the individuals that make up the group, especially when they didn't really have distinctive personalities in the first issue. I haven't read it, but Eastman said that they didn't really develop their personalities until issues two and three out of necessity. Hmm. I, I think they were trying to go with the, a uniform kind of look for them with a single color, but it, it fell flat because the turtles basically all look alike. Uh, I liked that in, in the toy line they changed their individual skin tones gave them different colored bandanas and even put a drl and an m in their respective belts i thought that was a nice touch and added to their individuality you could tell then who was who just by looking at them whether they were in the package or with other characters or not and that made a huge difference in accessibility oh agree that sounds about right to me but since you bring up uh, playmates toys um let's get into that 
Uh, one thing I realize about the Turtles is that their huge success amounted to a couple of points. Um, the first is that the comic raised enough uh, buzz with the right people that it was able to open up doors. Um, the, the idea was so offbeat and bizarre that people stood up and took notice, and that could work for and against the TMNT franchise at times. Um, the weirdness of the idea put off some people from even giving the Turtles a chance, but the weirdness could also command attention from the right people, and those who looked more deeply at TMNT could see the power that the idea really had. So the book caused enough buzz that people in the industry respected it. And even people in Hollywood, such as Robert Wise, were able to uh, aware of the Turtles by the time that they really took off. Um, the other point that led to the Turtles becoming big is that Eastman and Laird went through what at the time were unconventional channels. Um, they didn't try to get the Turtles noticed through comics as their main channel. Um, eventually, the, the comic became noticed by licensing agents, and they were able to secure a deal with a, with a toy company. Uh, the Turtles became uh, action figures before they were ever a TV series, and the cartoon became a vehicle then to sell the toys. Um, they also saw that the idea could be a huge hit with kids, just with the right tweaking, which is why you see far less of the Miller noirish uh, edge in the adaptations. And honestly, I can't say that they made the wrong decision by doing all that, uh, because it tapped into a much broader audience that way. I mean, they, they hit the perfect time to do that, too, because it was George Lucas and Star Wars that showed that a good action figure line could really build a franchise. Oh, yeah. And the Turtles hit it big the same way. Boy, did they, too. You know, TMNT holds third place in the best-selling action figure lines in history behind Transformers and G.I. Joe. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the toy market, that is saying a lot. G.I. Joe and Transformers were huge in the 80s and set some real record-breaking numbers. The only toy that ever beat out those three was the Barbie doll toy line that started in 1959. The first action figure, a G.I. Joe, by the way, didn't come out until five years later in 1964 and originally had a hard time getting boys to play with dolls initially and which is actually why they changed it to the names to action figures. Uh, the point being that Barbie had quite a head start on the market and had pretty much shaped it as just for just for girls. So when you consider that, their numbers are still impressive, you know, but with the slant. Wow, that is impressive. I mean, I never owned any of the figures, though I remember them being everywhere. Uh, Transformers and G.I. Joe were about as big as you could get with toys, though, and I did own some of those, but... It's definitely true that Barbie had a lock on the girls' market and probably still does to this day. Um, that the Turtles broke in that strongly says a lot about their popularity and their mass appeal. It does say a lot. And in their heyday, the country just went turtle crazy. They were, as you say, everywhere. I have to say, though, and I'm assuming that all kids go through this at some point, but buying the TMNT action figures when I was 14 was too much for my grandfather, who, my grandmother, who got them for me. She thought I was a little too old to be playing with toys, and she might have been right, but 14 or not, I wanted them. <laughs> so I was all up in that craze, too. Uh, but if we could switch gears, I'd like to talk about the TMNT comics and the various publishers. You know, we talked about Mirage Studios a bit, but we didn't mention the others that were brought on to the series as Eastman and Laird found themselves more and more wrapped up in the affairs of managing Mirage Studios as a business and had less and less time to work on the comic itself. 
The first person they brought on was Eastman's high school friend, Steve Levine. They brought him on to do the lettering, though he had to be taught how first. In 1985, Mirage Studios hired Ryan Brown as the inker. And in 1986, they added penciler Jim Lawson and painter Michael Dooney, who did several color covers. With the addition of these four and later freelance illustrator A.C. Farley, who was brought on to do covers for the collected editions and issue number 29 of the series, Mirage Studios was able to expand their line of spin-off titles with dozens of miniseries and a bi-monthly companion comic called Tales of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, featuring art by Ryan Brown and Jim Lawson, which was designed to fill in the gaps in the continuity of the TMNT universe. Tales of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles' first volume ran alongside the release of the TMNT animated series from 1987 to 1989, so I'm sure that helped out a lot. But ultimately, Mirage Studios published 75 issues between 1984 and 1985. Very cool. Um, as a fun fact, I'll admit that I love the story of where the name Mirage Studios came from. Um, Eastman and Laird uh, came up with a name when they were still a very small studio and working out of their house. Um, they called themselves Mirage as a joke because they looked like a real studio when they actually weren't when they started up. Now, eventually they grew into a full-time business with a proper office building as they got successful, uh, which led to the growth of their in-house staff as well. That is a funny story and a great name for such a business. But as you say, the Mirage became real very quick. From 1988 to 1995, Archie Comics published a series aimed at younger, uh, younger audience called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures, no doubt inspired by the popularity of the original TMNT animated series from 1987, as many of the first issues were direct adaptations from the animated show. It did, however, move on to original storylines, and the main series ran for 72 issues, plus numerous annuals, specials and miniseries, and an ongoing spin off series mighty mutanimals featuring a team of supporting characters huh i remember trying out a couple of issues of uh, that book way back when the, when the show was big uh, unfortunately those books uh, aimed a little bit too much to the younger audience for me and i'd outgrown all that by then but i'm sure that they were for the kids audience if they lasted that long yeah, when it comes to the Turtles, I have come to accept a certain level of child-focused humor and story elements, but it sounds like they exceeded maximum levels for that series. In 1996, TMNT moved to Image Comics for a short three years, in which time they produced 23 issues and a miniseries. But this series went way the hell off the rails. They had Splinter become a rat, they made Donatello a cyborg, Leonardo lost a hand, and Raphael actually became the new Shredder. It is no wonder the series was canceled in 1999 before Laird returned the Turtles to Mirage in 2001. Laird quickly disregarded that dumpster fire by image and made another 31 new issues by 2010. Wow, I don't blame him for that at all. I mean, it sounds like the book went off the rails and went full 90s. I think I would have <laughs> scrapped it and started over too if it were up to me. You know, new writers taking over can just as easily go good or bad, but Image didn't seem to have any respect for the characters, so I'm with you there, Steve. In 2003, uh, from June through December, Dreamwave Productions made what might be one of the shortest TMNT comic runs in history, inspired by the 2003 TMNT animated series. The first four issues were directly adapted from the animated series and were unique in that they told the perspective uh, of, of it was 
the turtles, but told from the perspectives of April Baxter Casey and a pair of New York City police officers. I think I vaguely remember the Dreamwave book. Um, if I remember right, Dreamwave was trying to follow up on the success of the Transformers comic, and they were trying to carve out a niche with popular cartoon IPs. Um, it looks like TMNT didn't quite the hit the mark that they were hoping for, though it does sound interesting. It is hard to tell how well something is going to be received, regardless of the of effort or intention. You know, I, I have to give them props for trying at least. The premise, the premise did kind of sound cool. I, I, I like the idea of telling it from different perspectives. But in 2011, TMNT found my favorite home for them when IDW Publishing acquired the license to publish new collections of Mirage storylines and new ongoing series. In August 2017, the 73rd issue of the comic was published, making it the longest running comic series in the franchise's history. However, uh, issue 100 from 2019 from the series marked the end of Tom Waltz and Kevin Eastman writing and Kevin doing the art for the series. And starting with issue 101, series artist Sophie uh, Campbell took over as the sole lead writer of the book. Hmm, I'm really glad that uh, Kevin came back to the series as TMNT comics always seem to do best when he or Laird are doing the book. Um, I regretfully haven't read any of them, but one day I really need to. I just had ever found a good jumping on point with it. Oh, you know, I really liked that Eastman came on it too. Uh, it felt like, it felt like you know, it was it was Eastman and Laird approved. You know, with with Eastman coming on to do it. But as far as reading those, you know, if you ever do try it, I know it's a lot of catching up to do. But I have to recommend that you start at issue one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and then and then read the two TMNT micro series. That's where that's where I jumped on and and reading reading TMNT, and I was instantly in love with it. I I, I couldn't stop reading it for months. That was all I bought, in fact. <laughs> Mm. Um, but speaking of IDW's various turtle titles, we talked about uh, how the Team and T Adventure series from Archie Comics spun off from the original animated series. Well, IDW took a page from their book and did a spin-off series based on the 2012 TMNT cartoon called The New Animated Event Adventures. That series also started doing original stories in 2013, but it was canceled after only 24 issues. However, in 2015, a new series was launched called Amazing Adventures that ran until 2017 that produced 14 regular issues and included a crossover miniseries called Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures. In 2018, ID, IDW put out another series based on the fourth animated series, Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but that only lasted for 10 sporadic issues and stopped in 2019. Basically, there was a lot of throwing comic book spaghetti at the wall and seeing what stuck. I have noticed that a lot of more of the more recent Turtles comics have been putting random things out with the hope of something sticking. But then you have ideas like The Last Ronin with the last surviving turtle running around in a bleak dystopian future. That's the kind of cool idea that you usually see in DC's Elseworld comics where you can really play with the mythology in different ways. I mean, that's frankly, you know, the Dark Knight Returns done turtle style. Um, <laughs> hopefully we'll see more uh, turtle projects like that in the future because that's really cool. You know, taking a storyline far into the future can be a lot of fun and can work really well towards making a universe seem broad and extensive. I'm reminded of the Rye series from Valiant Comics, where they did something similar with the Bloodshot character. But if I could, I'd like to talk about the 1987 cartoon. 
Um, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated series ran for 10 seasons from 1987 to 1996. And while it was a great show with a lot of fans, especially by the early 90s and the franchise's heyday, it was originally created for the same reasons a lot of shows were created back then, to sell toys. It had to be toned down quite a bit for Mirage Studios' super dark and violent Ninja Turtles to make it a kid-friendly show so those toys could be sold. But they did a bit more than tone it down. They changed the backstory significantly for the animated show. In the show, Splinter was a human once. His name was Himato Yoshi and an honorable ninja master of the Foot Clan who studies art history as a hobby. The Foot Clan were Japanese, were a Japanese dynasty uh, of ninjas founded by one of Himato Yoshi's distant ancestors. But Yoshi was banished despite his honored position in the clan because of the plot of one of the Foot Clan's students, Oroko Saki, who wished to usurp his position. To do this, Saki set Yoshi up to offend a visiting sensei who just at just the right moment, and Yoshi was disgraced and banished for it. Afterwards, Hamada Yoshi moved to the sewers of New York City where he lived with the rats, his only friends. Back at home, Saki was given command of the Foot Clan, which he immediately corrupted into a criminal organization, and it lost all of its former honor and glory. One day, Yoshi found four turtles covered in a strange glowing ooze, and because Yoshi had spent so much time with the rats, he turned into a humanoid rat called Splinter, while the turtle by, by the turtles who took uh, humanoid forms because of their contact uh, with Yoshi. Splinter named the four turtles Leonardo, Donatello, Raphael, R Raphael and I, this always bugged me, the Michelangelo thing. Shh certainly shows that they didn't know his name was Michelangelo. <laughs> but anyway, he named them after his favorite Italian Renaissance artist without knowing their name pronunciations, apparently. Artist and trained, and he trained them in the art of ninjutsu. It turns out that the mutagenic ooze was dropped in the sewer by Oroku Saki in an effort to kill Hamato Yoshi because he mistook the ooze for poison. Saki had brought the Foot Clan all the way to New York to kill Yoshi once and for all and establish a foothold on New York, pun intended, as a center for his plans for world domination. Once there, he tracked Yoshi down to the sewers and dropped in the ooze, but now Oroku Okosaki had donned a new razor-covered outfit with a ma masked samurai helmet and a purple cape and took the name The Shredder. The, but The Shredder was not alone. He was working with a disembodied alien brain from Dimension X named Krang, who provides The Shredder with advanced technology and funds to support his goals from his Technodrome. After several years of training under Splinter, the Turtles went out to find who was responsible for theirs and the Splinter's transformations. When the Turtles learned that their master's old enemy was behind it, they vowed to put an end to the Foot Clan, stop Shredder and Krang, and restore Splinter back to his human form. Um, now, it's been a long time since I've seen the cartoon, but I have fond memories of it. And I think it's one of the best versions of TMNT to this day. And I think a large part of the reason it was so good is that Robert Wise the creator of the show, knew and loved the original comics. In fact, he owns some of the issues from the original print run of the Eastman and Laird books. Um, Weiss may have been the one person in Hollywood who knew what the Turtles were and was a fan of them before the show was even made. So when the project dropped into his lap and he was asked to make a show out of the TMNT toy line, he was enthusiastically on board with it. I can't imagine the show being nearly as good if anybody else had uh, gotten hold of the reins. But the show did a really good job of building threats and a real rogue gallery based on what was in the books. I mean, you had Shredder and the Foot Clan as the main villains. 
uh, sometimes allied with Krang, sometimes not. Uh, you have Bebop and Rocksteady as uh, Shredder's uh, mutated muscle. Um, I remember Baxter Stockman and the Mauser robots that the turtles would have to regularly trash. And then you just had fun episodes from time to time, like when the samurai rabbit Usagi Yojimbo by Stan Sakai showed up for an episode. I mean, they felt more like superheroes in the cartoon version, and I think it really worked for that show. I think you're right about that. And I, and I think they leaned heavy on the super aspect in the latest movies, much to the chagrin of Kevin Eastman, I might add, who hated their enormous size and bulletproof shells. But we'll get into that in a minute. While the Turtles were and have remained popular for decades, the real heyday of the franchise was in the early 90s due to the in large part to the success of the animated series and the first Turtles film being released in 1990. For sure. So um, let's talk about that first uh, TMNT film. And I'll be mm -hmm. honest, this one was really good to the point where I think it still holds up decently well after 30 years. Now, I will say that the interpretation is a bit different than we see in the cartoon, as it does lean a little towards the comic version in some ways. It goes a little darker than we see in the cartoon, and I think it tries to balance the comic's tone with the cartoons. If that was the idea, it succeeded extremely well. Um, one thing that really works in the first film's favor is how much it plays on the themes of family. Uh, the Turtles and their father-son relationship with Master Splinter is a huge part of this movie. Uh, the Turtles lose their father for a while and then have to fight to get him back, all while overcoming their own differences. Um, at the same time, I love how that contrasts with Danny, the son of April's boss, uh, who feels uh, disconnected from his real father and ends up being recruited by the Foot Clan. Um, it's like the mentality you see with gangs or even cults. Um, so with Danny, we see the sense of a, a dysfunctional foster family that uses him and casts him aside when he's not of use to them. Um, it shows the difference between Splinter, who is a real father, and Shredder, who sees the people at his gangs may, merely as foot soldiers, uh, pun intended, <laughs> to fight uh, urban <laughs> war for him. <laughs> totally, totally. The Shredder and the Splinter are diametrically opposed in every way, and the original movie showcases that well. It really does hold up, too, and I think it is in part because of the animatronics and costume design by Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was also due to it being based more closely on the comic than the animated series. It, it had a darker tone. Adults were able to watch it because of that, and it didn't feel like they were watching a kid's movie. I think adults and kids enjoying it is one of the main reasons it was the fourth highest grossing film of 1990 and the highest grossing independent film at that point earning more than 200 million worldwide wow um you're right on the fact that the movie hit the sweet spot between the kids and the adult audience i think that that was a huge reason for the franchise's success for so long um it was a film that was accessible for everybody um, also, agreed on the creature shop and the animatronics. I mean, the turtles looked as good as you could make them in the early 90s, and all it was done all with practical effects. Yeah. Um, now, the second film, uh, Secret of the Ooze, didn't really make that huge of an impact on me, I'm sorry to say. Um, to be fair, I don't remember the film being actually like really bad or anything like that. Uh, it, I just remember it being not as strong as the first one. Um, I think they tried to build on the first movie by bringing in Bebop and Rocksteady, uh, who are two of Shredder's best-known henchmen. Um, I get the feeling they wanted to bring in more of the cartoon's influence because the show was still popular, but it lost a bit of the edge that the original movie had. It's just one of those films that nobody really talks about because it just did what it was meant to do and not much more. But what did you think of Team N2, Mike? There were parts of it I liked, but you're right, it lost its edge. 
Bebop and Rocksteady were just ridiculous in the second film. And honestly, I think they weren't done right until Out of the Shadows in, in 2016. But even then, I, I think they worked better as cartoon characters. Um, however, one of my all-time favorite rap lines uh, was in the second movie. When they were in the junkyard and Raph tells that uh, the what the temporary leader of the foot. You know, pal, if I had a face like yours, I'd try to make up for it with some sort of personality. <laughs> that cracks me up every time. I've even used that line myself once or twice. Well, I liked Vanilla Ice's song Go Ninja Go at the time. Looking back on it, I feel like that scene really capped off the sillier nature of the second film. And the mutated shredder hidden heavily in shadow was a flop, in my opinion. We needed to have a grander fight than after the first encounter, but that wasn't the way to do it. You know, Laird said that they took a big leap forward with the first film, and they had to take a giant step backward with the second film. Unfortunately, that meant that they basically had to start from square one for the third film. So the franchise was all over the place. But, but let's get into the third film while we're on the subject. Sounds good to me. Uh, the sooner I forget can forget that a Vanilla Ice song, the better. <laughs> <laughs> now, the last of the original live-action films was uh, TMNT 3, and I have fonder memories of that one. Uh, time travel was a thing that you'd periodically see in Turtles around this time. Uh, in fact, the best remembered of the video games is Turtles in Time, which we'll get into. And to be honest, I remember really liking the idea of dropping the Turtles in feudal Japan when it came out. Um, that made it a story about the Turtles connecting with their ninja heritage and the legacy of Hamato Yoshi. And I'll be honest, the whole idea reminded me of Karate Kid Part 2, with the, these Western kids having to learn about Eastern culture. Not, not to mention the idea of the Turtles fighting samurai in ancient Japan is just really cool. Um, I honestly thought that they all looked cool in Japanese armor. It, it's a shame that this was the last of the Turtle films, but all in all, this wasn't a bad place to end the series on. You know, I, I hadn't thought of that before but that was a lot like karate kid part two i really liked the connection to their ninja roots as well and, and there was some cool fight choreography in it too um and you're totally right about the turtles looking badass in samurai armor i, I like that they they added a bit of that in in the new turtles movies um i i did think that the scepter uh that that made them travel back in time was a bit cheesy and felt like a trope from the old mystery of the Orient days. <laughs> but that aside, and, and assuming the first film was the best, uh, I liked part three. Yeah, that's about where I stand on it as well. Um, but that wasn't the end of the Turtles on screen. I mean, there was an animated film called TMNT that was released in 2007. Uh, I actually didn't mind the idea of the Turtles as a 3D animated feature, and the art style of the film looked pretty decent. But the film in practice was probably not um, all that the creators were hoping it to be. Uh, like the second film, it was mostly a solid movie, just not that memorable for the most part as far as the story goes. But where it excelled was the voice cast. Uh, this movie featured such talents as James Arnold Taylor, who was Obi-Wan in the Clone Wars show, uh, as Leonardo. Uh, Nolan North as Raphael. Uh, Chris Captain America Evans as Casey Jones. Uh, Sarah Michelle Buffy Geller as April O'Neil, Patrick Stewart as the main villain, uh, Zhang Ziyi as a Foot Clan leader, and Lawrence Fishburne as the narrator. Even Kevin Smith gets a cameo in this thing. Uh, that is a really impressive group of actors, and it's just unfortunate that it doesn't get a lot more credit these days. That is a very impressive cast for sure, and, and having their verses, voices certainly added to the enjoyability of the film. I have to say that I did like TMNT when I watched it. 
it is definitely enjoyable as a as a one watch film. You know, like I don't need to own it, but I did enjoy the one watch through. Although it was clearly aimed at a younger audience. I mean, did anybody not know Raph was the Night Watcher? <laughs> no. That said, there were some cool fights in that movie, and the story wasn't bad. It was just a bit obvious. There were a few animated films that followed TMNT, actually, like Turtles Forever from 2009, which was intended to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the franchise by making a crossover between the original comic, the 1987 television series, and the then-current incarnation of the Turtles from the second animated series that ran from 2003 to 2009. Then there was Batman vs. Is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 2019, where Batman, Batgirl, and Robin forge an alliance with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to fight against the Turtles' sworn enemy, the Shredder, who has teamed up with Rachel Ghoul and the League of Assassins. Mm. It really is quite, it really is quite amazing how well the Turtles and Bats work together. I, I would rank it up there with the, with even with the Bats and Shadow crossovers. That that all sounds awesome. Um, I'll be honest, I don't even remember most of those. Um, I kind of drifted out of the series by that time, but maybe I should track some of those down. Um, most recently, though, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles got a live-action reboot in 2014, uh, and then later a sequel called Out of the Shadows two years later. Um, this version's probably best remembered for being made by Michael Bay, who at that time was fresh off the Transformers franchise. Now, I will admit that it took me a while to get around to this version. I am not a fan of Bay Transformers, and I really didn't have high hopes about what Bay would do for the Turtles. But I saw the first movie, at least, and it was a decent take on the TMNT. Uh, did you have any thoughts about the Bay reboot, uh, Turtles, Mike? How? As I mentioned before, aside from the turtles and Splinter being giant size and bulletproof, and I, I didn't, I didn't like them having super strength as well. Um, I did like both the sequel Out of the Shadows and the original 2014 film, though. Like the other live action films, I thought the first one was the best one. I really loved the character portrayals and the chemistry worked really well with the turtles. I also loved that they got rid of the more cheesy elements that made the, the second uh, film in the original uh, trilogy uh, fall so short. Plus the actors they got to play everyone was pretty good with the exception of Megan Fox playing April O'Neil, which I talked about earlier, but I didn't mention uh, the scene in particular that made me hate the entitled April O'Neil played by Megan Fox. She basically uses her co-worker and cameraman, Burn Fenwick, and treats him pretty badly. The one time he asked for a thank you for all that he'd done, her entitled response was, yeah, well, maybe one day you'll be thanking me. I just hated her after that. Oh, man, I can totally get that. Yeah, that's just not April to me, if I'm honest. I mean, she's always been more of a kind and, and, and caring character in the appearances I've seen before that. But anyway, um, now that we've discussed most of the Turtles' other appearances, um, let's get into the video games. Um, yeah. the, Turtles, the Turtles were a big part of gaming at one time. And if you spent time at the arcade way back when, you usually see a, tur a Turtles arcade <laughs> game or a pinball machine game you know, somewhere. Uh, there was no branch of pop culture that the Turtles had not broken into in some way or another. Um, there have been a lot of Turtles games over the years, mostly for old handheld systems like the like the Game Boy. So I'll just talk about uh, some of the ones that stood out to me the most. That said, you will be able to play uh, those old games again. Um, there's a new re-release uh, called TMNT, the Cowabunga Collection, that includes all of those old Turtles games, and it should be available on PS4, PS5, um, Xbox uh, and Series X and uh, Nintendo Switch. Now, the first 
um, TMNT game was just called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it was released on PC and for the original uh, NES uh, Nintendo system. It's a side-scrolling action game, and it's known for being brutally hard. Um, I, I died constantly in that game, and I know I'm not alone in that. Uh, even the angry video game nerd went off on this game. Um, but in fairness, uh, a lot of those old NES era games were pretty tough, especially those based on comic book heroes. Um, even with four playable characters giving you four chances to get through the different levels, it was still rough just to get through the early sewer levels of that game. Um, if you've beaten the original TMNT, I salute you, because that is truly an achievement to be proud of. But it actually was a fun game uh, for its time, if you leave aside the difficulty. I remember playing that on a rented Nintendo from Ray's video, and it was difficult. I don't think I ever got very far into it, but to be fair, I didn't get to play Nintendo often enough to really get it any good at it. The TMNT game I played a lot was the arcade game, as it was down at Chica's Market by my house. I spent my allowance on that game many times. It was super fun. You know, I think I may know the arcade game you're thinking of, and if it is, it is fun. Uh, probably the Turtles game that people remember best and is probably the most popular is TMNT Turtles in Time. Um, it is a fun side-scrolling beat-em-up where you choose a turtle to fight with. And essentially, uh, Krang uh, steals the Statue of Liberty and kidnaps April, and you have to go and stop the bad guys in different time periods. Uh, you fight uh, Foot Clan members, but also major villains like Rocksteady, uh, Bebop, and, and even Krang. Each of the turtles plays differently, and they're all fun. But I always stuck with Donnie and Leo because they had greater reach with their weapons. Um, I sunk quite a few quarters on this one in the arcade version. It, it was available on the Super NES as well, but this game was always best played in the arcade. I bet you can guess which ones I stuck with. <laughs> Raph and Mikey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sounds exactly like the arcade game I was talking about, actually. That's cool that we were dumping our money into the same arcade game as kids. As per usual, my friend, we meet in the middle. Uh, it sure seems that way here. I, I don't know why, but it seems like the Turtles seem to work best in the side-scrolling beat-em-up format. I mean, they've tried different formats with the Turtles games uh, later on, but it seems like the games that stuck were the side-scrollers. Um, I think now it's gone to the point where the nostalgia factor of the format has added to the appeal when it comes to TNT games. It's all basically dumb fun where you beat up full clan soldiers while the Turtles crack jokes in the background, and that's good enough for me. Um, but most recently, in uh, June 2022, they did another beat-up game in the style of the old Turtles games. That game is called Shredder's Revenge, and it takes place in the animated series continuity. Uh, it plays like a Streets of Rage type of beat-em-up game, and I honestly think that works if you want to go nostalgic. Uh, the art style is very much in the vein of the old Turtles cartoon, but it doesn't look like they're getting too kitty with it either. Um, while I haven't played Shredder's Revenge yet myself, the reviews I've heard from people who have played it um, have been uh, positive so far. One day I really would like to try it out and see how well it holds up, but we'll see on that. I don't, I don't think I played any more of the TMNT games uh, other than what I already mentioned, and, and that was 30 years ago. But, you know, that does sound kind of fun when I hear you talking about it. Mm -hmm. However, I think we've covered the 360 on the Turtles in this episode, and, and that wraps up our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles discussion. I want to take this time to thank our patrons who make this podcast I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.